Well, the Bible contains many different kinds of literature. There are historical books. There are record books and journals. Um, the Chronicles is a journaling of the lives and events, the major events of the kings. Um, there are books of prophecy. There are letters. Uh, the Gospels are a special kind of biographical literature. The book of Acts, again, is historical narrative. And so all through the Bible, we have these different kinds of literature. Normally, when we pick a book off the shelf, we know what we're reading. Rowena gave me a book for Christmas about a general who served as the head of all Allied forces working in Iraq and Afghanistan during a period of time. And it's an autobiography, meaning he wrote it about himself. It's an autobiography of his career with an emphasis on the things that he learned about leadership. Well, I know what kind of literature that is because the whole volume is an autobiography. But when we take the Bible off the shelf to read it, uh, all of these different types of literature are mixed together. And we don't always know uh, unless we're thoughtful about it. Well, let's see. Am I reading uh, history here? Am I reading... Uh, narrative portion here? Am I reading uh, something intended to teach me something? You know, how many of you uh, have put a... Well, don't raise your hand because I'm about to uh, put the lie to it, but uh, how many of you have put a fleece before the Lord? Well, a fleece is not necessarily a good thing. It comes from a passage of Scripture that describes what a doubting coward did to figure out the will of God for his life. And is this really God talking to me? Um, and so you don't always want to follow everything that you read because you have to discern, is this normative? Is this instructive for me? Am I supposed to be following this? Or is this... This just what some fool did, and the Bible simply recording it as uh, you know his particular choice. So it's important for us to kind of understand a little bit about what we're reading, and um, with that in mind, when we come to the Psalms and the Proverbs, these come from a collection of five different, we call them books, but really in this case they're collections of writings in the middle of our Bibles, consisting of Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. And these five collections uh, are a kind of literature or genre of literature called poetry. They are Hebrew poetry, and it has a particular style to it. And so as we read the Psalms and Proverbs, if we understand a little bit about Hebrew poetry, we're going to have a little better appreciation of what we're reading and why the things are put the way they're put. One of the points I want to make 
about people who write poetry is that they are intentionally and deliberately artistic and emotional. They are purposely seeking to create an art form that is designed to evoke some emotional response that often leads to making some choice or some action. And I say that in distinction from other kinds of writing. You all write friendly letters to your family. You don't think about the, the sentence structure so much. You don't think about uh, how to arrange the verbs and the objects and those kinds of things. You, you probably don't give a lot of thought and get out your thesaurus and try to choose the most colorful adjective or adverb. You just write a note, you know, and, and you do it because you want to share something. You just get it out on the paper. Or you may write a business letter and you're trying to communicate uh, to someone else in business what the particulars of, of your need or their need may be. And so that's kind of a technical sort of writing. Um, when you read the newspaper, you're, you know, you're reading uh, something that was written to meet a deadline very quickly. And some writers are more gifted than others. And more often these days, I find misspellings and wrong word uses whenever I do read that it's like, wow, and they're journalists. That's a little scary. But anyway, but if you're going to write a poem, you have to think about it. You can't just jot off a poem. You've got to think about the meter of the lines. You've got to think about what rhymes. You have to think about how it fits together. You have to give thought to how you want to use words in such a combination that your reader feels what you're feeling. And so, a poem is designed with deliberate intent to fit a certain style of writing and to cause a certain reaction. David has often been called the sweet singer of Israel. And the reason for that is most of the Psalms were written by David, although not all of them by a long shot. But most of them were. And Probably Solomon was the author of most of the Proverbs. But as David was writing these Psalms, he was interacting with God from his heart. And as he was contemplating nature, uh, when he says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the earth demonstrates His handiwork. You think about that and you think about this young fellow that spent nights after nights after nights, probably years, with sheep as the youngest member of his family, tending sheep uh, out uh, in the countryside around his hometown. Uh, uh, a person that was 
first of all, you didn't have to worry about city lights because there weren't any cities. And he was even away from the village. And so he often had the opportunity to lay down on the grass at night and look up at the heavens and contemplate the stars. And uh, hopefully you've seen stars uh, in an area where there are no artificial lights and the, the the universe just seems to go deeper and deeper and deeper. And and David thinks about that when he writes, the heavens declare the glory of God. And then he looks around him in the daytime with the sheep and considers all the elements that surround him uh, in nature. And he says, and the earth shows his handiwork. You know, this is first-hand personal experience. David is drawing us into his vision of God in the universe and in nature. Other times, David is railing against his enemies. Do you know what an imprecatory psalm is? It's a God-get-em psalm. (laughs) It's literally a prayer that God will destroy the enemies. And uh, bring triumph and victory. Um, There are many different ways that David expresses his heart. Oftentimes in praise. And we have uh, toward the latter part of the Psalms, some Psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. Which were designed to be sung as the Israelites mounted the steps to the temple. You talk about an agonizingly slow progress. Uh, take a step and sing a song. Take a step and sing a song. But the idea was to contemplate and meditate on going to meet God. And with those psalms to uh, exclaim His glory and His majesty. And so... Psalms are poems. They're lyrical. They have meter to them. They have a sense of flow that is easy to memorize. And they're intended to be memorized. They're intended to be sung. They're intended to evoke meditation because they want to bring us into the heart of the writer as he becomes intimate with God. And oftentimes the intent is to cause that same response in you. For example, let's look at Psalm 1 together for a moment this morning. Psalm 1. Perhaps many of you have memorized this. Although... Doubtfully, we've all memorized it in the same version. But Psalm 1. Wait till you land and the rustling comes to rest. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. 
He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous." But the way of the wicked will perish. What action here is the psalmist inspiring the reader to choose? When you read this psalm, what does he want you to do? Meditate on God's Word and, and do what? When you've done that, what, what, is, what is the goal? What is the action? Meditation is it's action, it's thought, but what's the goal here? Pardon? Okay. Pardon? Be godly. Choose the right path. That comes from meditation. It comes from... Uh, delighting ourselves in the Lord. But what the psalmist wants you to do is to read this psalm and say, (laughs) blessed is the man that does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. His delight is in the law of the Lord. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. It yields fruit in season. Its leaf doesn't wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. Be like that guy. Don't be like the wicked. They're like the chaff which the wind blows away. They won't stand in the judgment. That doesn't mean they won't be there. It means they're going to get blown away. They won't stand in the judgment. They won't be in the assembly of the righteous. The way of the wicked will perish. And so, the psalmist is trying to say, look at these two kinds of people. Choose the godly path. It has great blessing. It will fill your life with prosperity. And I don't mean material prosperity per se, but it will fill your life with blessing. You will be content. You don't have to go to bed and and fret and worry that somebody's going to find out what you did that day or tried to pull the wool over somebody's eyes or the lie that you got caught in and now you got to tell another one tomorrow to keep up with what you told yesterday and then eventually you forget where you are in your string of lies and the wicked end up like that. Be like the righteous man. And so the Psalms, more than any other collection or book in the Bible, brings us into intimate communion with God and serves to evoke our deepest feelings. They could be feelings of joy or spontaneous praise to God, wonder and amazement at His creation. Let's look at Psalm 3 for a moment. Just over a page, maybe, maybe not even a page in your Bible. Um... David is fleeing from Absalom, his son. Remember, Absalom had betrayed him and had uh, 
temporarily taken over the kingdom. And Absalom's army was out after him. And here's what David says, Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. Think about that. That's what Selah means. Think about that. David's in trouble. How does David feel right there? How does he feel? Who is Absalom? His son. His son. He's chasing him down with an army to kill him. How would you feel? You see, and David is running for his life. That's not like David, by the way. But part of the reason he's running is, how easy would it be for you to kill your son if he were chasing you? You see, he doesn't want to confront. He's running for his life, and they're out to get him. And then he remembers, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory, the one who lifts my head. David recalls God's favor toward him and his promises. And he says, I was crying to the Lord with my voice. And he answered me from his holy mountain. Think about that. David's reflecting on the promises of God. And he's drawing encouragement as he cries out to the Lord. And the Lord comes to comfort and encourage him. And so what does he do? I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Think about that. You see, David recalled the promises of God. He cried out to the Lord and received assurance. And he lay down and slept. Isn't that cool? And so, when you read the Psalms, ask yourselves these questions. What is the emotion that's going on here? What is the writer feeling? What is he experiencing? What does he long for? And how does that fit me? Every time you read a psalm, you're not going to find that it fits you. You may not be there right now. But oftentimes, especially in the course of the week as we read together, you're going to find that you identify with the psalmist if you just give it a little bit of thought. Ask yourself, what is he feeling? And what ought I to do as, as a result of this? Let me tell you just a little bit about uh, how psalms are structured and then uh, we'll, uh, 
will end for the day. But almost all Hebrew poetry is written in parallel structure. That is, there are two lines. Line A and line B. And those two lines have a relationship to one another. They either uh, make a statement in line A to which more information is added, and that's called synthetic. What do you do when you synthesize something? You, you bring it together, right? So that's synthetic parallelism. When the second line says exactly the same thing as the first line, but in slightly different words, that's a synonym, right? It says the same thing. Synonymous. A little different wording, but basically the same meaning. When it says exactly the opposite of the first line, it's antithetic. It's opposed one to the other. Uh, I'd like you to turn to Proverbs, and I'm just going to pick a proverb out, because these are great for illustrating this. I'm going to pick out uh, Proverbs 22. Proverbs chapter 22. And let's just uh, ask ourselves if we can figure this out. Almost all the Proverbs have these two simple lines, A and B. Here's Proverbs 22, 1. A good name is to be more desired than great wealth. Favor is better than silver and gold. What do you think that is? Does it add to it? Does it say the same thing? Does it say the opposite thing? It kind of adds to it here, don't you think? A good name is to be desired more than great wealth. And favor is better than silver and gold. You could argue maybe synthetic, maybe um, synonymous, but I think it more adds in the second one. Look at verse 3. The prudent sees the evil and hides himself, but the naive go on and they're punished for it. What do you think that is? It's opposite, isn't it? Antithetic. Line A says, the prudent looks down the road and sees the problem. <laughs> and he gets out, he hides. And the naive says, ah, no trouble for me. And he is punished for it. <laughs> Not very smart. So, they say the opposite thing. The reward of humility, verse 4, and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. What's the second line do? Kind of adds to the first one, doesn't it? So it's synthetic. Now, you don't have to remember parentheses. You don't have to remember these names. I'm not trying to make a Hebrew poet scholar out of you. Don't worry about it. What I want you to remember is the style. I want you to read and ask yourself, how does this statement relate to this statement? What is it saying to me? Verse 9, He who is generous will be blessed, for he gives some of his food to the poor. 
You see, that's synthetic. It's adding the reason for the blessing. The one who's generous will be blessed. How? Well, he gives some of his food to the poor because he's generous. And there are all kinds of blessings in that. There's the blessing of giving. There's the blessing of the person receiving it. There's the, the, the blessing of the Lord upon those who remember the poor. That's just being generous. See? And so, as you read the Psalms and you read the Proverbs, think about this has a flow to it. The first statement and the second statement have a relationship. Is it trying to tell me there's a difference? Is it trying to tell me there's a reason for the first statement? Is it trying to, to emphasize a point by repetition? What's going on here that will make me appreciate this more? And then as we read the Psalms, we'll find, as I mentioned before, there's Psalms of praise, there's Psalms of lament. You know what a lament is? It's kind of like, these awful things have happened to me. Oh, Lord, I need you. Where are you? <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm in trouble. And this is my history, and it's not been good. Um, Lamentations, Jeremiah's long poem, is all about sadness from the plight of the nation. Some of them are ballads. You come to the Psalm of Moses, and the one that they sang after they came through the Red Sea is a remembrance of all the things God had done for them. As I mentioned, the imprecatory Psalms, God get them, the ascents. And then there are Messianic Psalms. Some Psalms just tell us about Jesus long before He was born. Psalm 22 is the most accurate picture of crucifixion you will ever read. And it was written 700 years before the Romans. No, it's almost a thousand years before the Romans. So, there's prophecy in the Psalms. And as you read them, they will become a great blessing to you. Well, I hope that the things that I've shared with you this morning will get you off to a good start. We'll look at some of the Psalms and some of the Proverbs next week that we're reading, but I hope this will get you off to a good start. And as you read, that you'll read with reflection and with thoughtfulness. And let the Lord speak to your heart and uh, draw you into the heart of the writer. Don't, don't just read the words. Ask yourself, remember the question, ask yourself, what is the writer feeling? What ought I to do as a result of this? Father, we thank You for Your Word to us. We ask that You bless the songs of Israel to our hearts. And that You give us new insight and delight in Your Word as we read them together. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.